It's an honor to be asked to preach today, and I also want to especially thank Bill for putting this big podium here. Unlike most of the pastors that uh, bless you every Sunday, I have feet that don't wander very far, so I like to stay fixed in one spot, and uh, hopefully we'll have move hearts and minds today, but my feet will stay in the same place. Now, initially, when Samuel asked me to preach, I said, fine, and I thought, oh, great, I'll get to pick a passage with a missionary topic, and I'll illustrate it by some exciting things that we see God doing through our digital media work with the Somali people. But then I read the fine print of the invitation after I had agreed, and I realized I'd be preaching within this encouraging and convicting series on the book of Nehemiah, Rebuilding Hope. Then, as I began reading over chapter 10, I realized I'd been given a pretty challenging portion of scripture. This is a very important part of the narrative about Nehemiah. It's about the sequence of events that began with rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Now, after reading and explaining the law, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, and there was this corporate group repentance of God's people. And we read of a signing ceremony to a covenant, a set of promises made to God. Now, Nehemiah, the leaders, and the people together are saying, we're going to walk the talk. Literally, they're getting on the same page with their signatures and seals. Before I read chapter 10, I first would like to pray. O holy triune God, we thank you for including the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. Thank you for the sermon series preached by Samuel and Reuben as we consider the response of your people and that season of reformation and revival you had granted we pray that you will likewise work in our hearts, not just individually, but as a body, to bring renewal. O Lord, help us to value the good news that we find in your holy word. Forgive us our lack of concern for the glory of your name, for your desire to have the gospel preached to all peoples. Forgive us for our thoughts, words, and deeds, and disobedience to your commands. Forgive us also for neglect of a holy lifestyle, to think, speak, and act, reflecting your faith, joy, and love. Dear Father, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, help me to proclaim this portion of your word in a clear, faithful, and practical way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 10, and then actually the last verse of chapter 9. We'll, we'll start with verse 38 of chapter 9. So whether you have a, a paper Bible or digital, uh, just uh, we'll, we'll be looking there starting at the end of chapter 9. And I'll admit reading most of the names, much as I love the sound of Hebrew, I'm not that good at speaking it, and we'll kind of skim over, summarize the names that we see there. So starting with chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verse 38. Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So now starting chapter 10. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah. And then verses 2 through 8 are the names of 21 priests. And verses 9 through 13 are the names of 17 Levites. And then we get from 14 to 27, 44 chiefs of the people. I'm picking up again on verse 28 of the rest of the chapter. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, 
all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. It was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for wood offerings to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of the Lord to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring the tithe of tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. The word of the Lord. So my points today will be, is covenant-keeping legalism? Question. Mixed marriage problems and faith-based finances. So starting with point one, let's look at that question. Is covenant-keeping legalism? Why did Nehemiah and the people feel the need for a written document? Why did they make this covenant with God? Well, it was not enough just to say they were sorry for their sins. Now, last week we heard Reuben preach an excellent, excellent sermon on repentance. And if you've missed it, check it out online. The people in Jerusalem needed to show that they were sincere, that they were going to serve the Lord in a wholehearted way. And there was past precedent for this in their history. Covenant-making had happened twice in the kingdom of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. During the revival that took place under King Hezekiah, which is mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, and then in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, the revival under King Josiah. And in particular, the revival under King Josiah came with the rediscovery of the Torah, the law of God, and that was publicly read, followed by corporate repentance. Essentially, this covenant was a written document with a solemn promise to follow the Lord no matter what the cost, to walk in God's law, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Now, this covenant was written, signed, and sealed by both government leaders, like Nehemiah and Zedekiah, the traditional leaders, those 44 chiefs, the Levites, and the priests. And the text of this covenant is recorded now in verses 28 to 39, and we'll consider its contents and see how it applies to us today. 
But the whole idea of a covenant was a public expression of a heart to be holy. I want to make really clear, this is not a covenant of works. Nehemiah and the people were not telling God that they wanted to earn his favor by obeying his law. This covenant is not a denial of grace or of the gospel. No, by making this covenant, the Jewish people were responding to the grace they had already received. Let's review some of the main events we've seen so far. In chapter 1, Nehemiah takes a great risk to make a request of the Persian emperor. Please, let me go back to Jerusalem and help rebuild the walls. In chapter 2, Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem and does his survey. In chapters 3 to 6, Nehemiah leads the Jews in rebuilding the wall in spite of great opposition from the surrounding peoples. In chapter 5, on the side, Nehemiah takes up the cause of the poor Jews who were being enslaved by the rich countryman. And finally, in chapter 8, Nehemiah gets Ezra and the Levites to teach the law to the assembled people. And this ends with a joyful feast. Revival takes place. Now, having experienced all of these unexpected, gracious acts of God, the Jewish people responded by making this covenant. Now, it's not recorded in Nehemiah, but some commentators believe we can assume that just before this covenant declaration and signing took place, they had had the celebration of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The assembled people will have seen the high priest take sacrificial blood into the Holy of Holies in the temple and sprinkle it to atone for his sins and the sins of his people. Then they would have witnessed the ritual of the scapegoat. The sins were confessed on the head of a goat, and the goat was driven out into wilderness where it would never be able to come back. Both of these God-given rituals foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You've seen in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament The promise of obedience comes after the experience of grace. Thus, the covenant declaration of the people in Nehemiah 10 came out of thankfulness. They were reflecting on being rebuilt as a nation. They wanted to be clear about displaying their gratitude to God for his grace. And the actions, along with the words of the people gathered in Jerusalem that day, was also, it was not legalism. We see that the covenant was not making up new rules or additions to the law. Reuben referred to this last week, talking about the Pharisees at the time of our Lord's ministry on earth, where they added all these little rules and regulations to the existing ones. No, Nehemiah makes it clear in verse 29 that the Jewish people wrote up their covenant to walk in God's law. They wanted their gratitude to be obvious and practical. Walking in God's law gave an outward display of holiness. It set the people of Israel apart from the culture and the customs of their neighbors. Now, what is it? What is holiness? Would you be happy if I called you holy? I doubt it. This word doesn't have a very positive connotation today. If we think of someone and we call them holy, maybe they're otherworldly at best, or hypocritical or fanatic at worst. But if we look at the meaning in Scripture, it's important to realize this is something we should be. God is holy, and we are called to be holy. In response to the revival, the Reformation renewal that had taken place in Jerusalem, the Jewish people promised to show their allegiance to God. And this allegiance meant realigning their lifestyle. It was going to be in ways that were radically different than the nations around them. It was showing a pattern of life based on the law of God, with which they had just recently become reacquainted. They were to be beacons of light. The Jewish people took collective action here. They were becoming literally on the same page, signing it. There's something we can learn from here, too. We're looking at a culture that stressed tradition and communal and corporate life. 
That's quite different from our modern American culture, which stresses the latest fashions and fads, individualism, having many rights, being who you want to be, doing what you want to do. Conformity was encouraged in Nehemiah's time, and it still is in many cultures today. And to some extent, and, and to some degree, it's a very biblical uh, theme. So let's consider the key point. To what standards should these people conform? What sort of obligations were they promising to fulfill? Well, Nehemiah and Ezra had different roles while serving and leading the returned exiles, but both stressed returning to an obedient lifestyle based on what God had revealed to Moses in the Torah. This brought Nehemiah and Ezra into conflict with various political, cultural, economic forces within the Jewish society and around them. Let's examine the practical implications mentioned in the covenant that God's people were entering into at that time. And what would be the long-term significance for them and also for us? That brings us to our point, our second point, mixed marriage problems. And before we look directly at this, we have to avoid some major misunderstandings. Verse 30 states, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now this meant that the remnant, whether they were the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, or Levi, they would not intermarry with neighboring peoples like the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod. We have to consider the Samaritan people, their neighbors to the north. Their faith had become diluted over the years. The Samaritans were a mix of folks from the nine tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. Most of them had been deported 200 years before by the Assyrians. Those who were left behind had intermarried with the neighboring peoples. And these Samaritans had developed a mixed religion using both the Torah and religious elements from the surrounding nations. Let's take some time to unpack the context and consequences for this declaration. It should not be interpreted as a racial prejudice. The issue at hand was faith, not ethnicity. Now, as we learned earlier this year in the sermon series on race, ethnicity, and mission, the Bible has frequently been misinterpreted on the question of race, including people within our own country, sadly, even by prominent, some prominent Presbyterian and Reformed scholars and lay people in the past. And these misinterpretations were used to justify slavery and racial discrimination. When we talk about mixed marriages here, the issue is religious faith, not racial or ethnic identity. And here are three examples from the Old Testament of outsiders who joined the chosen people of Israel by embracing faith in Yahweh. Think of the story in Numbers 12, the Cushite wife of Moses. She was from modern-day Sudan. Think of God's punishment to Miriam, Moses' sister, for murmuring about her younger brother's choice of a bride. She struck with leprosy for a week. Moses' wife was part of this mixed multitude that accompanied the children of Israel in their exodus from Egypt. They had become followers of the one true God along with the other 12 tribes. Or then we think of the story of Rahab, in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, this Canaanite prostitute and her family, they became part of Israel. After the destruction of Jericho, she trusted in the one true God and hid the spies that Joshua had sent into Jericho. And then there's the book of Ruth, a book devoted entirely to the story of a Moabite woman who puts her faith in Yahweh. Ruth becomes the great-great-grandmother of David. Thus, she becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And these are not the only examples from earlier in Israel's history of outsiders coming to trust in the one true God and then being grafted in. There are some commentators who look at verse 28 in chapter 10 here, and they look at 
and they interpret it as a reference to recent converts at the time of Nehemiah, people who are becoming part of this covenant. For that part of 38 says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and then here's the other people, all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. So there were even converts at the time of Nehemiah. Having established what we're not dealing with here, that is ethnic superiority and separation along those lines, what is the problem? Well, Nehemiah had been dealing with a physical security threat to Jerusalem and to the people of God. The wall had fallen down. This is something they had to rebuild in order to reestablish themselves and reestablish their worship of God. However, intermarriage was a spiritual security threat. And we just have to think of some of the motivations for this intermarriage that was going on. Think of social climbing by marrying local people that were from prominent families. Let's think of one of those evil three musketeers, as Samuel calls them, Tobiah from Ammon. Tobiah's son, Jehohanan, had married a daughter of the Jewish nobleman Meshulam. And probably Meshulam thought, that's great, now I'm related by marriage to one of the powerful people in a neighboring land. That was something politically to his advantage. But as the law was read and explained to the people, they realized what the law required of them in their choice of marriage partners. Now, how do we apply that today? Well, definitely not in a racial way. The New Testament is clear that being one in Christ does not allow for any racial discrimination. However, the principle for not marrying unbelievers remains. The Apostle Paul was inspired to write these words on the topic of marriage in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Now, certainly, these words in 2 Corinthians are hard to swallow in our modern pluralistic society. But God's word is not based on consensus or popularity contests or being on the right side of history. On one side, there's a practical spiritual reality. If you want to have a harmonious family life and a solid marriage, it's essential to share the most important part of your belief system with your spouse, that is, believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. On the other side, being in darkness, what Paul refers to there, need not be a permanent situation. Church history is full of dramatic conversion stories. Think of Saul, who later was called Paul. Think of that pagan partier, St. Augustine, or that slave trader, John Newton, or that skeptic scholar, C.S. Lewis. Unlike ethnicity, faith is not something you just inherit and cannot change. When the people of God witness to someone and pray for someone, that someone can be changed. Returning to Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 5, he even points out that a wife who has come to faith can sometimes win over her unbelieving husband. When some, then, the witness value of healthy Christian marriages in our modern world is significant and important. Marriage is a unique kind of interaction with those who might not share your faith. However, we are not to meet to be totally separated from any interaction with unbelievers. The Apostle Paul makes it quite clear that Christians are not to be totally separatistic in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Now, he's dealing with a case of church discipline, sexual immorality of a member of the Corinthian church, and he wrote, I write, wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So what Paul is saying, you have to be stricter with people in the church 
you don't apply those same uh, rules for those who are outside in terms of just general association and, and mixing with people. Our example with how to live as a minority comes from a, the writings of the apostles. For the examples that we see in the book of Acts of the expanding church within the pagan Roman Empire. And we can also look at the advice of the Old Testament prophets, like Jeremiah. He wrote to the great-grandparents of the people alive in Nehemiah's day. And in chapter 29, verse 7 of Jeremiah, we read these words from him to the people in exile, the people exiled in Babylon. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Think of the examples of Daniel and his three friends, of Queen Esther, of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are all examples of believing Jews working within the pagan Babylonian and Persian empires. As God's chosen people, living a holy lifestyle is a careful balance, avoiding certain behavior relationships while at the same time participating as much as possible in our society. We have to do regular self-examination on this whole issue of dilution and distraction of our faith and life, beyond just mixed marriages. Think of social media, entertainment, sports, politics, news. These are not clear-cut, obvious evils. It's not like meth or heroin or porn. Those are fairly obvious things. These are things which are not evil in and of themselves. But they are forces in society that can affect our level of obedience, our walk with God. How do we prevent them from absorbing our thoughts, dominating our time? How do we exercise holy time management? How much they influence, how they influence us and affect our prayer and devotional and corporate worship and church involvement is, is something for every individual to work through. And here I preach to myself. Now, for example, I have very little interest in sports, unlike many folks. But that's, so that's not a problem for me. But following the news, big problem. Just as an example, uh, given the current escalation of the civil war in Ethiopia in this past week, I've had to be really careful this week not to obsess by constantly checking for the latest developments on my smartphone. And amazingly enough, as I had written this down in that sermon, it was actually Uchi's idea to mention that, my, one of my news apps started malfunctioning, so I don't, that, that problem took care of itself right then and there. I'm moving on to faith-based finance. I'm dealing with some trepidation here, because in my 17 years at New Hope, it seems that we always have a tradition that Pastor Tommy is the one who preaches on stewardship and giving. However, since a sizable part of the passage assigned to me relates to this topic, I cannot shirk my responsibility. So give. Amen. No. Let's look at what we can learn about faith and finances from the covenant signed by the Jews in Jerusalem after revival had taken place. Now, whether Sabbath trade, temple tax, supplying fuel wood for the offerings, giving the firstborn fruit, firstborn offerings, all of these actions were impacting everybody's financial situation. And we have to remember that these Jewish people were not generally prosperous. There are a few rich folks, but most of them were fairly poor. Their grandparents had just returned from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Consider verses 31 to 39. By following through on these different actions, the Jews would definitely have less disposable income and less time. These were involved financial expense and use, use of their time they could be working. They were basically agreeing to tax themselves more to support the priests and the Levites. 
Now, another aspect of this covenant was observing the system God had instructed Moses concerning the Sabbath or the sabbatical year or the 50-year jubilee. This involves stepping out in faith by following these laws that the Lord had given to Moses at Mount Sinai. These were laws that showed, among other things, God's concern to protect the poor within society. Think about the sabbatical year and the jubilee. Debts were canceled every seventh year. The ownership of property changed. Land that had been sold reverted back to its original owners. Now, to comply with this, you had to have faith that the Lord would provide his shalom during that special year. How would you have an income? How safe were your investments? Your bank account, if you had to cancel the debts that were owed to you and give land back in the sabbatical year or the jubilee year. The bottom line was the question, are you living for your possessions? And looking into the New Testament, our Lord Jesus warned us strongly about that in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the last verse in this chapter sums it all up. We will not neglect the house of our God. And that was a major concern for prophets after the exile. Just look at the writings of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They had to deal with the fact that giving was often done grudgingly. Probably Malachi was written during this time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah records the details the people covenanted on to keep the system of offerings functioning at the temple, the temple tax, the firewood, the first fruits. Now, how important was all this costly temple worship? Well, one commentary by Nielsen and Carson puts it clearly in this way. Temple worship was the God-ordained means by which sinners were brought back into a right standing with God. So from Mount Sinai to the hill at Golgotha, nearly 1,500 years of these temp- tabernacle temple sacrifices took place, and they all pointed forward to the final and only effective sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. They were all reminders of the necessity of atonement by the shedding of blood. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, important reminder here, too. The temple was not, is not the same as the church. Christ's sacrifice has totally removed the need for any temple or system of sacrifices at this time. However, there is a parallel with giving to the temple and its needs and and our need for the church to receive funds and our support. In order to function, to be a blessing to those within the church family and those in the broader community where we have been placed, regular giving is needed. And the New Testament has a lot to say about it, whether the teachings of our Lord Jesus and the gospel accounts or the examples in the book of Acts as the church is growing, or in the writings of the apostles. When the Jewish people in Nehemiah's time joined in this covenant, they pledged to share the cost, to give what was necessary. They were on the same page in committing to contribute time, possessions, and money. Now in conclusion, do churches sign covenants 
today? Well, it has happened in church history from time to time, especially after times of revival that there have been covenants signed. It's, it's not so common. This was New Member Sunday. And think about what your church membership means. Whether you were welcomed in today, or you joined a few years ago, or you've been a member here all your life. How can we be together on the same page to show our love for God and our love for our neighbor? Well, it begins with a clear understanding of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the penalty, died the death, and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. Now, as we put our trust in Jesus Christ and deepen our knowledge of the grace given to us and our restored relationship with God, we should then respond in gratitude. A holy lifestyle in the world, but not of the world. Obedience to scripture in our relationships. Demonstrating our trust in God's providence and our stewardship of time and money. We express our love to our God, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and also to our neighbors, no matter how different they may be. Returning to Matthew 6, let's remember what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And may the Holy Spirit empower us to do so as part of the body of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this portion of your word. Help us to keep it in mind as we live out our days. Help us, Lord, to make a difference in the world based on the power of your spirit, based on our love for you and our gratitude to you. And Lord, thank you that we can make a difference in this world in our words, in our deeds, and also in our prayers. And Lord, in a, in a special way, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ethiopia as that country is on the balance of perhaps disintegration. We think of the many Christians in that land worshiping today, the many people praying there for peace, and we, we just join with them and pray that you will avert violence. And Lord, keep our eyes open for serving you in the, the big and the little things of life day by day. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.